None of us can uh, forget that terrible day back in uh, 2011 when a magnitude 9 earthquake uh, led to a couple of uh, devastating tsunamis hitting Japan. The entire communities were destroyed and uh, thousands perished. And, of course, one of the uh, the most spine-chilling uh, aspects of the disaster was that the uh, Fukushima nuclear power plant had a meltdown. It was the worst uh, nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. Now, 12 years later, the UN International Atomic Energy Agency has uh, cautiously, well, reluctantly approved Japan's plan to release more than a million tonnes of treated radioactive water from that site into the Pacific. It's a decision that appalls uh, environmental groups and agitates neighbours like China and South Korea. So does the science stack up or is the Pacific in peril? Now, Dr Keith Bisler is a marine radiochemist and advisor to the Pacific Islands uh, Forum. Ken is uh, also the senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, where he analyses the impacts of these sorts of disasters on the environment. And uh, Ken joins us from Massachusetts. Welcome to our little program, Ken. Let's go back to March 2011. What exactly happened? Yeah, my pleasure to be here, Philip. Well, as you said, there was a horrific earthquake followed by tsunami, and that 50-plus foot of water, that wave, as it hit the coast, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants are situated on that coastline, and the power generators were lower down at the level of, say, the beaches, the sea level, and they were inundated, they lost power, and what happens in a reactor is you need that power to continuously cool down, even if they're not operational. So when you can't cool down a reactor, heat builds up, there was explosive releases of gases, and many of the forms of radioactivity that become volatile under high temperatures. So certainly the largest release to the ocean, uh, exceeding Chernobyl in terms of the ocean impacts in 2011. I I vividly recall Japan's nuclear industry uh, watchdog being very critical of the operators of uh, Fukushima. They said it was a man-made disaster, not a natural one. Well, you could argue we should know better in terms of where we built these types of facilities. Certainly, they could have put these generators higher up in the buildings. That would have stopped this from happening. Other reactors on that coastline did not go critical. So there were steps that could have and should have certainly been taken. I Well, let's, let's look at what's happened in the 12 years since the meltdown. Water has been needed, as you say, to continue to, to cool the, the melted fuel and debris. How has, Japan, how has Japan treated all this contaminated water? What Do they try to filter it? Yeah, filtration might not be the right word. It's more of an extraction process. Maybe if you're familiar more like with the charcoal filter for drinking water, you're passing water through materials that absorb different forms of radionuclides. It's not an easy job. Uh, Today, it's down to, it's reduced to 100 tons per day of groundwater basically leaking into these buildings. 
Think of your worst nightmare in your home, right? You've got water continuous flowing in. They pump that through the reactors to keep them cool, but every day they have more and more water. It's built up to 1.3 million tons, over a thousand of these large tanks. And as they collect it, they do treat it. They've had several generations of something called the ALPS purification system with these extraction beds. But they've shown us the data in 2018, so seven years after they started to release the data. And there's a lot of very uh, high levels of isotopes of concern still in the tanks. And I think well, I'm sure we're going to get to this, but what concerns me the most is that they still haven't demonstrated after 12 years that that system that they're proposing to use now is effective at removing these radionuclides to a sufficient degree that they should be released into the ocean, even with dilution. Now, Japan says that they will dilute the treated water by many orders of magnitude before it's, uh, before it's released. Are you comforted by this assurance? No, it's really a, a question of, of trust, right? My uh, feedback to them was, why don't you purify, do your cleanup, and then make a plan rather than having had 12 years to do this give us a plan that says, oh, trust us, we will take care of it, right? I think, you know, they've woefully inadequate in terms of their communication and demonstration that they're up to the task. And this is a task that will take decades, 30, 40, 50 years out, they'll still be releasing this water. So during this entire time, the system has to be completely operational, removing the non-tritium forms of radioactivity. I'm sure we'll get to tritium is the one you hear about. It's basically radioactive hydrogen. And if you remember any chemistry, H2O, the hydrogen molecule, uh, or the water molecule, contains hydrogen. That's why it's hard to remove tritium. The others are somewhat easier. But as I said, if you're thinking of things like cesium, strontium, plutonium, they tend to be more dangerous uh, forms of radioactivity. And again, they haven't shown that they've been able to consistently remove them down to levels where dilution alone would be sufficient. And this new crisis comes as a result of Japan's saying, well, I'm sure it's true too, that they've simply run out of space to store all this uh, contaminated water. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, they've been saying that for, I think, more than five years Uh to me, it's really a, a non-issue. If you look at a, a satellite image of the site, yes, there's a lot of tanks, over a 1,000, but they purposely keep land available for when they do remove the cores, if they can accomplish that feat. They have a place to store it on site. And there's ample room just outside the fence, right? This is an area where you're not going to be building schools, factories, housing. There is area to put material next to that site. So I think this idea that they're running out of space, that actually bothers me a lot because they should take up more time. We're concerned that the impact assessment isn't sufficient. The cleanup so far has not been conducted. And this idea that they're running out of space, I think, just doesn't fly. So one could suggest that this is a, a cost decision rather than an environmental one. Yeah, certainly putting it in a pipe and getting rid of it, it's out of sight, out of mind, and it's cheap. But there are alternatives. And a couple of years ago, I was proposing storage. You can buy earthquake-proof tanks of very large volumes 
done for things like LNG, liquid natural gas. But uh, okay, that's more expensive. But over time, many forms of these radionuclides, particularly tritium, the one of concern, uh, decay away. They disappear because of their radioactive properties. So if you just hold on to that water for 50 years, you would remove more than 95% of the radioactivity without putting it in the ocean today. Well, Ken, why, then, why the haste? Um, why the haste? That's, you know, again, I think it's a, a financial decision, and it's also, if you can get rid of it, the problem goes away, right? If you can put it in the ocean, now they solve this problem. And I, I think that's that's of, of concern to me. That's, you know, the quickest solution isn't always the best. So I'm not saying that what they're going to do will destroy the Pacific Ocean as we know it with massive death and, you know, marine life washing on shore. That will not happen. But I'm saying there are alternatives to doing this. Uh, and time is not so critical that they have to finish by this summer or even next summer. Uh, room for storage. You could make concrete blocks for tsunami barriers out of that same water. And so there are ways to deal with this that don't involve release to the ocean that I think they should follow. Ken, explain to me the uh, the major decision by the UN last week. Why? Yeah, when you introduced this story, you said they approved this. Now, if it's interesting, Grossi, the head of IEA, said IAEA neither recommends nor endorses Japan's plans. So those are their exact words. It's in their report. They, what they do then follow up and say they're confirming that it meets some international standards. So they're not saying this is the best plan. They're not endorsing it or recommending it. They're saying that it meets standards. And what we've been talking about is they haven't yet met those standards. IAEA trusts that Japan will do that. I and others are saying, well, let's have them show that. Then let's come up with the plan. So it's a bit of, yes, if everything happens, we will uh, approve is not the right word. We will say you meet international standards for operational reactors. That's another issue we could talk about because it's not an operational reactor. But I, I just don't think they premature in making that kind of assessment. And we shouldn't really call it approval. Thanks for clarifying that. Now, who will oversee this gradual release of the water into the ocean? Well, recently, one new thing in the report last week of IAEA is that they want to have an on-site presence. Uh, the main monitoring groups right now that they're talking about in the ocean side are TEPCO itself, some of the fisheries agencies, uh, groups, some of which have experience, but I think they haven't demonstrated. Another other things you would like to see is a more clear demonstration. They looked at a few of the tanks with TEPCO, the company that operates at IAEA, but they haven't demonstrated that their labs and uh, groups have the qualifications and sufficiency to do this in the ocean, the field that I'm in, ocean radioactivity. That's actually a little bit more difficult. Thankfully, the levels will be lower which makes it more difficult. But if you're trying to sample seafloor sediments, marine life of different types, how you do that really matters a lot. Ken, have you and your colleagues been able to test the water in these tanks yourselves? Uh, not in the tanks. My group has been going since the first couple of months after the accident in 2011. 
on the ocean side. So we have a pretty good idea of the levels, say, of cesium and strontium and tritium in the ocean water and seafloor. And so we will continue to try and get there independently uh, to monitor. But it's a big, it's a big job. It's an operation that they should be responsible for. Yes, with independent confirmation. But uh, right now, thankfully, the levels since about 2015 are reduced such that the fisheries have reopened. The, the fish, every fish caught meets the safety standards of Japan, which are quite strict. So that was the good news, right, in 2015. And that was kind of a response to the accident, years of hard work. Now, again, what's concerning to me, this is a deliberate release of nuclear waste. This is not an operational facility. And to me, that calls for different standards, different ways. We don't allow dumping of radioactive waste in the ocean under the London Dumping Convention. But here they are using the regulations for an operational power plant to put a pipe into the ocean to release these, which, again, does happen from an operational nuclear facility. You do have release of radioactivity but this is not providing electricity. This will never be turned on. This is a, a disaster site, a, a waste disposal problem. Would you explain to me very briefly what uh, bioaccumulation is? Yeah, we haven't talked about bioaccumulation. It's just the uptake of isotopes. For example, strontium-90 ends up in the bones because it behaves like calcium. So whether you're a fish bone or humans who eats fish and their bones would accumulate more of that in their bone than is in the water that, say, the fish is swimming in. That's the case for many of these non-tritium isotopes. And in the same way, bioaccumulation kind of happens. It's actually not bio, but marine sediments will accumulate isotopes like cobalt 300,000 times more likely to end up on the seafloor near that outfall pipe than the tritium that they've been focused on. So if these other forms of radioactivity are quite concerning because of bioaccumulation and sediment accumulation. Ken, thanks for that. I've been talking to Dr. Ken Bissell. Ken is a marine radiochemist from uh, the Woodhull Ocean Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts, from where he's been talking to the Little Wireless Program, and he's been analysing the impact of the Fukushima meltdown on marine environments, and he's also an advisor to that organisation we've often discussed, the Pacific Island Forum. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.